What's going on, guys? If this is your first time tuning into Living Real Driven, welcome. I'm your host, Nick Updike, and I started this podcast to really help you guys push your comfort zone, get uncomfortable, and evolve mentally, physically, spiritually, and most importantly, embrace that badass version of yourself that you're meant to be, whether you believe it or not. I'm going to get you to believe it. So get ready to hear from experts in different industries as well as people that are just like you and me that are pursuing their passions to the fullest and taking that necessary massive action regardless of all the challenges and adversities and punches in the face that they're going to experience on their journey. I'm going to show you guys that living an impactful life filled with purpose is possible. You don't have to settle for that 9 to 5 average life if you're willing to work your ass off and make the necessary sacrifices. No more freaking excuses. If you're ready to dominate life and become the person you're destined to be, get your notes out and let's begin living a real driven life today. What's up guys, welcome to Living Real Driven. I'm your host Nick Updike and today I have my man Jimmy DeFalco on the show. Today Jimmy's gonna share his incredible story with you guys about how he was able to completely turn his life around and create a dramatic change in himself so he could then go help other people create a dramatic change in their lives. Today, Jimmy's gonna share with you guys some tools and advice on how you guys can go out and live a better life yourself. So thank you so much for being on the show hey, today, man. Jimmy. Thank you for having me, brother. I, I really do so appreciate much. it, dude. Hell yeah. So I think the logical way to start this interview is for you to give a little bit of a background to your story because you had a very volatile childhood and you grew up in a pretty rough environment so just tell the audience a little bit about you know yeah how it all started man like you said man like uh you you know looking back at it now i know it's a volatile and crazy upbringing but as i was living it um you don't know what you don't know and i thought it was all normal right. at the time so my father you know i grew up in a wolf of wall street type of environment my father owned his own advertising agency and he made millions of dollars each and every single year but he also partied with alcohol, cocaine, strippers, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. And uh, a lot of it was done in front of me. And that quickly shaped my belief system in, you know, what a man was, what a man was defined by. So if you asked me, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, I'm 32 now at 20, what a man was defined by, I would have said, you know, how much money that he makes, um, you know, can I cuss? Dude, you know? yeah. Okay, okay. How many girls he fucks? and you know how many fights that he's won. So that's what I thought that a man was. And in life, every action we take and every decision we make is based off of our belief system. So for the next you know, 10 or 15 years or so, all the decisions I made were based off of that belief system. And that led me down a crazy road. Uh, but to step back for a minute, um, I went to Florida State University and I graduated in 2008. And when I graduated, I was excited because you know, I knew exactly where I was going and how I was going to get there, right? I was going to start working for my father, and in a few years, he would hand me the company, and I was going to make more money, part, you know, fuck more girls, and party harder than he ever did. Like, I couldn't wait. My whole life was already planned out. Um, but as, you know, the ones of you who are old enough to know, in 2008, the, you know, whole market crashed, right. and my family lost everything. If my dad made, you know, 1.5 one year, he'd spend 1.9. So when everything went to shit, we lost everything real quick, like gone, the houses, the limos, the yachts, you know, the, the trips in, you know, penthouse suites, the status, the lifestyle, all of it was gone. And it was a really difficult time on everybody in my family, but especially hard on me. I'm the oldest of five kids and my dad had to shut his company down due to tax reasons and he begged and pleaded with me to Basically, it was the only income our family had to open up a company in my own name because there was too much bad tax debt associated with his. So as a 21-year-old kid, yeah. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, right? Great way to start a career, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. While he's kind of like on a downward spiral, um, taking Oxycontin, doing Coke, um, and doing all this all day. In the back of my mind, I kind of knew it was a bad idea, but I felt like I had no choice. Like my mother and my two brothers and my two sisters, they had to eat. You know, they had to pay the mortgage. Um, even though our house should have been paid off, my dad kept on taking, you know, more loans and, and finance and refinancing it. So I was, opened up, was this after you yeah. graduated FSU? Yeah. This is probably about three months after I graduated okay. FSU. So, you know, I graduated, I thought my life was set. That was it. Right, right. I already knew. 
Um, I saw what my uncle did. So my uncle graduated maybe 10 years before me. And, you know, he was driving around in Porsches, right, you know, yeah. fucking all these 20-year-old girls as he's 30 years old. And I'm like, yes, like this, I'm going to do what Uncle Jerry did. So, you know, I couldn't wait to make that happen. And like I said, three months, we lost everything. So I opened up the company in my own name. And after about maybe 18 months of grinding, barely getting by, we had a few employees, but we weren't making that much money, right. um, especially when you have, you know, 20 grand a month in bills. Um you know, I get a letter from the IRS. Oh yeah, and by the way, while I was doing this company, my dad was in and out of jail. So I remember specifically a 21-year-old kid not knowing much about the industry at all. I was just, you know, a sales guy. I knew sales. That was basically it. I would have one phone on one ear with my dad from jail and, an, <laughs> and another phone on the other ear with like a GM from a car dealership. And I'd be, he'd tell me something and I'd be like, yeah, and then like I would go back and forth between my dad in jail and this. Um, so it was a crazy dynamic. And after about 18 months of this, I get a letter in the mail from the IRS. I owed them 40 fucking thousand dollars in payroll taxes. Jeez. Because again, I was only handling the sales side. My father was handling everything else when he wasn't he was in jail. handling it. Yeah, handling it. So I quickly shut down the company. I dissolved it. And you know, this threw my father into a fucking rage. Like leaving me voicemails, like how he's gonna kill me and all this. Jeez. So I just block his number, right? Um, and then one morning at like five or six a.m., I was living in a condo with my buddy. Um, I hear a boom. Where is he? Where is he? And like I immediately knew it was my dad right. coming to fight me. And my whole entire life, I was scared shitless of my dad, like physically, because like he. He never like really beat me or anything. Maybe like smacked me around once or twice, but he's he's ne he was never physical with me. But I've seen him like I said I party with him a lot, so I've seen him knock got knock three hundred pound dudes out with one punch. Yeah. He was a professional boxer, you know. Oh, and, yeah, and that his, makes a big and, difference. Yeah, and, and a prof and a wrestler in high school in Jersey, where wrestling is yeah, it's prominent. Yeah, and plus he was just a psycho motherfucker. So I was always scared of him, right? Dude. But <laughs> so when I heard his voice, my initial reaction was like, oh fuck. Uh, I'm like, yo. He's getting older, slower, and I'm getting faster, and I'm growing into being a man. I was maybe 24 at the time, 23. And so I was like, all right. I jumped up, threw my shorts on. I go, I'm right here, motherfucker. And I remember he came charging at me, and he swung. I stepped back. I quickly like grabbed him in like a, a, a headlock. So I had his head right here. And again, he's my father. I don't want to fight him. I don't want to hurt him. I'm basically just defending myself. Yeah. And so jab him a few times like this. And like what he said next, like I'll never forget the look in his eyes and like how he said it. He looks me right square in the eyes. He goes, that's all you got, motherfucker. And that was when I was just like, what, what, what? I started just throwing haymakers on him. And as I was doing that, my friend had an aggressive pit bull. He didn't know what was going on. He jumps up and he bites me through the fucking ear. So like I had literally had like a canine a whole hole. No way. Through yeah, a whole hole through. Yeah, I can see I can see the indent. Yeah, the whole I had like a, you know, it looked like I had a gauge at the top. Um so I quickly dropped him and I'm like, "Matias, get him." That was my roommate at the time. He's like, "He's done, man. He was knocked out cold. I think he was up for like 3 or 4 days smoking crack." Um so I remember we literally, I picked my own father up from under the arms, dragged him to the driveway, and called the cops. Uh, we didn't talk for maybe four or five years after that, um, but we have we have a relationship today. Um, he's changed a little bit, but I still keep him at an arm's length. I'll always love him. I'll always care for him. He's my father, um, and he did the best that he knew. You know, he was raised in a crazy environment in Jersey, um, watching his father do some of the same things. So. You know, he was only raising me like he was raised, right. basically. So I don't, like, blame him for that. I don't hold any resentment for that. Um, so, you know, back to the story. So at that point in time in my life, like, I was playing the victim. Like, I was just like, look at all this bad shit that's happening to me. We lost everything. My father's fighting me. Like, and I was just, I was lost. I was lost emotionally. I was lost spiritually. I didn't know who I was anymore because, you know, I associated myself with this 
guy who lived this type of lifestyle that I couldn't live anymore. Right. No more limos. No more yachts. You looked up to him as a role model. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Life, so like that lifestyle, the whole glamorous lifestyle. So when that when that went out the window, you're like, "What is life, dude? You're literally so confused." I bet. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't know I was confused mm-hmm. at the time, but it was I, I didn't know, you know, what to do next. I had all these emotions, all these feelings. I didn't know how to deal with them. So I just continued to party my ass off. I was always a partier. Um, you know, before I got into the pills and stuff, which I'll get into later, I was, I was an alcoholic, but I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have to drink, but when I did drink, like two to three days a week, it was blacked out. Nine out of ten times, if not ten out of ten. Um, like this like bump on my nose, this from falling drunk, this thing right here is falling, this tooth, you can see it's a little shorter. It's a, it's an implant. I fell on my face at Florida State and lost. I didn't know what happened until I woke up the next day. So I remember. I, I feel you, man. I woke you up. Know? I woke up. I took a piss. I was like, oh my god, I feel like shit. I look in the mirror and I was like, ah! like, right, like I was like, I go down. And I was like, yo, what happened? What happened? They're like, we don't know. <laughs> like Jeez. my roommates didn't know. So you know. We come to find out I just fell at my buddy's house and hit my head on a coffee table. But you would think those things would get me right to change. Like, all right, like bad things keep happening when I drink or I'm doing drugs. Like, yeah. I should probably change my behavior. But Exactly. And it, uh, just another quick story just to give you guys some context that I don't want to glamorize this type of lifestyle at all. Just show you guys how far gone I was as a sophomore. Um, I was in a frat. We were at a party. My buddy ended up driving my car home because he was just drunk. I was wasted. And I get out of the car. He gets arrested. Gets a DUI. Jeez, There's like yeah. three cops behind me. I'm blacked out. I don't remember any of this. I get out of the car. I walk around. I get in the driver's seat. And I drive the fuck away. With the cops still behind me. Like, they quickly pulled me over again. I wasn't trying to run, I don't think. You don't think? I don't think. Because, they, <laughs> yeah, because, I, don't because I pulled over, like, right away, they yeah. said. The police report. I pulled over, like, a quarter mile away. You know, they dragged so you don't me out. What went down, really? Huh? No, I don't remember anything. Oh, only only thing I know is what my roommate told me was I woke up in jail in a fetal position on the cold concrete. I was like, yo, what happened? What happened? My roommate was like, you got a DUI. I was like, I remember he was driving at least. I was like, but you were driving. And he's like, yeah, bro. But so I banged on like the glass, which was still in the holding cell. They were, I was like, what am I in here for? They're like, um, two assaults on an officer and a DUI. So. That, you know, I had 45, 450 work hours. Instead of going to Spain with all my roommates for the weekend, like I was, uh, for the summer I was supposed to do, I had to stay and do those work hours in Leon County Jail and black and white stripes. It was hell. That like, didn't knock the sense into you, Dude, man? again, that was sophomore year. I did this senior year. Dude. So, dude, even then, I would, so I was on felony probation. If I pissed dirty, I was going to prison for like three to five. I would smoke for two weeks. And then stop smoking for two weeks. You know? Yeah, like That's ballsy. Yeah. That's really it's ballsy. stupid. And I, I would always test myself like the night before from like those Walgreens tests. Yeah. And, like you could barely see the line. I'm like, all right. I think days. I should be good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'll hit the sauna today. Exactly. So, you know, all those things, they never change me. Um, so b- back to kind of, you know, after that fight with my dad, I moved to downtown Orlando um, moved into a high rise and I continue just to party my ass off, drink all the time, you know, and that's where I really got into cocaine. So I'm like, Hmm, I keep on falling on my face. So I realized the Coke allowed me to stand up straight and I didn't, you know, get sloppy and slur. Right. So I got really, really far into Coke and doing it every single weekend. And that's, this is the time I met the mother of our two children, uh, Julie. I have a quick question. Yeah. How were you able to support your habit of buying that much Coke? Because you didn't have all that money at the time. So at, at, the, at the time, I had a decent job where I was making maybe 70, 80 grand a year. Okay. So I had, yeah. So, so you I, did have a spending. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I yeah. So, um, you know, my, my rent was only like a thousand bucks a month or something like that. So I had, I had some money to, to spend. It, and plus it. it was always like four of us going in. So it was like, yeah. you know, 30, 40 bucks. I was good for the night. Um, so... That's when I met Julie, and we were just kind of messing around at the time, and she ended up getting pregnant. And this is a part of the story where I'm always a little hesitant to share um, because I didn't want a kid. 
I wanted my party lifestyle. I wanted to do me. I wanted to be a bachelor. I wanted to fuck right. girls. I didn't want to be tied down. So she refused to get an abortion. And so I call my uncle because I wasn't talking to my father at the time. The only role model that I know, although it wasn't a very good role model. Yeah. I'm like, what should I do? He goes, tell her you're not going to be around. So I, I told her I wasn't going to be around. I wasn't going to be a father to this kid. And I can't even like... Imagine I, I, yeah. without him now. Like, I can't even imagine like just being that shitty of a person because I didn't talk to her for three months. I let, th- I let my son grow inside of her for three months and I let her be alone. And I don't think I'll ever fully forgive myself for that and putting her in the pain she went through because I still think she deals with it today. But um, yeah, man, that's just one of, one of the things I'm always hesitant about sharing about what people think about me. But again, just to context of the person that I was or the person I am today. Um, thank the Lord she did not listen to me and she still went through it. And so my mom called me after like three or four months. She's like, Jimmy, like she's having the baby, man the fuck up. Yeah. So I went back and I begged. I begged her. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, let's, let's do this together. She agreed. We moved into a nice three-bedroom house um, in a suburb uh, called Lake Mary, Florida, outside of Orlando. And we kind of started our lives together. And I should have been really happy at this time, right? I had a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was driving around a Cadillac. Um, I had a nice house with a fenced-in backyard, a nice patio. I had my first son on the way, but I was still focused on partying. Yeah. I was seeing all these other Facebook photos and all these other things, and I was playing. You know, I couldn't imagine I was having a kid out of wedlock. Like this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, and I was still in the mentality, in the sense that, like, why does this all happen to me? You know, like, like I was living a perfect life or something. Like I didn't right, do it right. to myself. Um, so I had this victim mindset and I felt like I was out of control in my own life because I was blaming it on everybody else. So my neighbor at the time, um, had Oxycontin and I was already prescribed to Xanax for like four years. So I was taking Xanax. I was snorting them. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even swallow them. I would wake up, take a piss, snort a clozapam. And so my neighbor had, uh, Oxycontin. And I've done them before, I dabbled, but like I said, I was more of a partier. So I would do it on like a Saturday yeah. night and then not do it again for months. But now since the partying was taken away in the suburbs, um, those pills grabbed a hold of me, they grabbed a hold of me quick, man. Like I, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I lost my job. I went into my job, blacked the fuck out. Like, on Oxy? Huh? It, what is Zan- Oxy? How does it make you feel? So Oxy, Oxycontin is generic, is heroin made in a lab. Like the, like the makeup is pretty much, it does exactly what heroin does to you, um, just without all the additives right, and street right. stuff that heroin's included. So basically, dude, it's euphoric. Like I don't want to like glamorize it again, but it's yeah. like, I felt like I was a piece of shit. I hated myself. I didn't love myself. I didn't, I, I just hated myself. I, I didn't even want to look at myself in the mirror, but when I, when I snorted one of those pills, I was the fucking man again. I was the man again, right? I could do anything for an hour, right. you know? And then after that, you kind of get tired. You way worse and about You kind of get tired. You kind of nod out until you need some again. So the Xanax coupled with the Oxycontin had me in a total stupor. Total stupor. Eventually, Julie saw what was going on. She kicks me out, rightfully so, right? And this is when... Me and my father had somewhat of a relationship then, not really, but I had nowhere else to go. None of my friends wanted anything to do with me. My own mother said, no, you can't come here, you know, and I, rightfully so. You know, she had my high school young brother and sister there. You know, you don't want drugs no, in me there. Yeah, so, so I went to my father's house, which was a terrible decision. Instead of my father helping me get back on my feet, get a job, do this, he bought like a, like a half an ounce of Coke. A whole bunch of pills and we literally got high together for a week straight and that's when I went in to my job fucked up so what would you have done differently instead of going to your dad would you have- I would have rather been on the fucking streets yeah straight if I had to redo it again I would have slept on the streets you know that's what I would have done yeah halfway house or, or something. a halfway house a homeless shelter anywhere 
but there. Right? So Damn, dude, that's so fucked that your dad I mean, like that's just how he is. That's how he he lived for so long, yeah. but damn, that's Yeah. Just <laughs> he was not helping you out with that one. Not helping me out at all. I remember I woke up at like two or three o'clock on the Monday. I'm like, oh fuck, I missed work. I he's like, You went to work and they sent you home. Like I didn't even remember being there. And I was like, What? And I wake up, I see my emails, my you know and this the, the owner of the company was like a good friend of mine. He helped me out a lot through this struggle mm-hmm. I was going through. And I felt really bad for embarrassing him. You know, when I went to rehab, he kept me employed. You know, this was after rehab. So um, I didn't even touch on that, but rehab was just three weeks. I relapsed for six months after that. And the six months after is when I went to my father's. So this week at my father's house, Nick, was the deepest, like darkest, most painful time. Um, part of the reason was cause just everything in my life has fallen apart even more than it already was. Secondly is because I finally started to make the connection because before, like I said, I blamed everybody and everything else, the economy, my father, God, bad luck, whatever the fuck it was, it wasn't my fault. You know, look how I was raised. I basically used how I was raised as an excuse to act like a fucking idiot. Yeah. Like even though I knew better. I was like, but look how I was raised. Even people would reaffirm it for me. You know? People would be like, dude, you were raised in such... And I'd be like, yeah, that's why I'm this way. I feel like since your dad was such, such a successful businessman, like, yeah, he, he fucked up a lot and like he did a lot of drugs, but he was a successful businessman, so you think he would take more responsibility and teach you responsibility? Or is that just something the drugs just kind of like... and all the alcohol That's, that's what I was wondering because... Yeah, so... How is he so successful in business? He... He was just, you know, he, my father's one of the smartest guys I know. Like, he can just, you know, you give him, you know, just like two, two huge numbers in the thousands, like multiply, he'll have a number in like two seconds for you. Like, and just being able to negotiate and buy media and creative. He was very creative, although he'd probably get most of his ideas when he was on shrooms, <laughs> you know. But he would work, he yeah. would work harder than everybody too because he was always fucking on coke. So he would... I remember going into my dad's office, 15 or 16, interning. It was like 10.30 in the morning, snorting a fat line of coke. Like, like, Dad, what are you doing? His explanation was to me, you know the year I did the most coke is the year I made the most money? Get the fuck out. So he literally, in his head, he associated coke with success. And that's how I started to associate drugs. So this week at my father's house, I finally started to make the connection between the decisions I was making and the life that I was experiencing. And it was fucking painful. Like, to finally come to the realization that this is all my fault. Yeah, the economy crashed. Yeah, yeah, my dad put me 40 grand desk with IRF, but that was my fault. I should have been looking at the books, you know? Yeah, my family lost everything. I couldn't have really done everything about that. But hey, man, like, just because necessarily one thing isn't your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility to fix it, you know? Just like a kid who's abused, you know? It's, it's their responsibility to not abuse their kid, right. you know? So, yeah, maybe the first event wasn't my fault, the economy crashing, our family losing everything, but every fucking thing after that. How you reacted to it. Yeah, how I reacted to it was all me, man, but I blamed it on everybody else, how I was raised, all of it. So the hurt and the pain from this, like I played back the last time I picked up drugs and I had my two-year-old in the back seat, you know, going to this fucking trap house in the ghetto to buy drugs off this dude. And... I just, I remember, because Julie was like, you do this one more time, you're out. And I remember I was at a red light. I like would look back at my son. I still remember what he was wearing. I can picture his face to this day. And I look at the, go back and forth like three times. Should I do it? Eh, fuck it. She'll never find out. You know, that was the time she found out. And that's what catapulted this whole event. So I replayed that moment again and again. And it was almost as if, if I replayed it enough, like I would make a different decision. You know, but that's not how that shit yeah. works. So I literally thought that like God was like, okay, Jimmy, like you want to literally look at your son and then pick drugs. I'm going to take it all fucking from you. 
and I deserved it. I didn't deserve any any of that. But that pain was so deep. I didn't think it could get any worse. And then I get a call from Julie, you know, my kid's mother. We're not together anymore, but she was pregnant again. So I have no job. My car got repossessed. I'm about to lose my condo. I'm a fucking loser drug addict. And I'm about to have a second kid. I was like, not ideal. No, not at all. And so I was like, this is it. I'm done. Like, I can't. I, there's no possible way that I could ever get my life back on track. So I started slitting my wrists. And although, like, I, I don't think I was really planning on killing myself, but it was just like a cry for help. Like, right. I, I didn't know what to do or how to do it. So I told one of my friends I was doing this. And, oh, to go back for a second. So I remember... Like, while I was doing that, I remember falling on my knees, right? And I was like, I was, again, I thought it was like God's fault. I was screaming at God. I was like, God, why? Like, why are you doing this to me? Like, why me? What have I done, like, to deserve a life like this? Like, I don't get it. But, like, one thing I want all you guys to realize, like I said before, it wasn't God. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't the economy. It was me. It was my decisions. And I hated myself so bad for making those decisions, you know, I decided I was going to end it. My friend luckily called the cops. And in Florida, um, if you're a harm to yourself or others and you can prove it, they can Baker Act you, which is a 72-hour legal hold at a mental health facility. So I'm in this mental health facility with people in, like, straight jackets and all this shit. Yeah. And you're like, how the hell did I end up here? Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, they're screaming at all hours of the night. And unfortunately, this wasn't my first time in one of those facilities. Um, but it would be my last and something clicked in there, man. Like, like it was God or just like my own self just realizing like some, I think truly, I don't remember exactly. It was still all such a blur back then, but I think God came and spoke to me. He was like, yo, if you don't change, like you're going to be dead in your prison and your sons are going to follow after you. And the, the, the thought that my sons were going to live the experience type of pain and the life that I was experiencing, like not growing up with a father, like a fucking junky father, was enough to finally like kick me in the ass and get me to change. So over the next year or so, um, I got a good job. I reconciled things with Julie. We had our son. And everything like was going really, really well, right? But I still felt like there was something missing. I still felt like unfulfilled, right? So I just kept on asking myself, like, what's my passion? What's my purpose? What am I meant to do with my life? And the thing is, most people don't ask, ask themselves questions like that. And if you constantly ask yourself questions, like your subconscious mind will go to work on it, right? When you're sleeping, when you're driving, when you're do, whatever, when you're doing whatever, your subconscious mind is looking for an answer to those questions. So after a few months of asking myself those questions, I'm like, fuck, I finally have an answer as to why I, when I was screaming at God. Why me? Why am I going through all this? I did so I could come out successful on the other end and share my story to hopefully help other people get through their own story. And so that's in like a split moment. Like I remember where I was, what I was doing. I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm, meant, to be, I'm meant to be a coach and, and, a, and, a, and, a, speak, and a motivational speaker to share my life story to help others get through theirs. So then I just kind of started, I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to do. I started putting out content on social media. I started my own podcast, Jimmy D Radio. Um, I started applying for TEDx talks and you know, it just led me to where I am today. And it's, it's still been rough. Bad things still happen, right? Like, the last nine months, I've had two surgeries. I tore my pec tendon and I tore my bicep tendon. But today, both surgeries, by the way, without any pain pills. But today, I'm oh, yeah. able to. Hell yeah, man! Um, thank God they gave me like a nerve blocker, though. So like I couldn't. So, wait, what is a nerve blocker? So I couldn't. I couldn't even move my arm for like 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. And then after about 48, I could move my fingers, and then I could eventually. After about three days, I could move my arm again. But at least that got me through. Because I told the doctor, first thing, I'm like, 
I'm an addict. I can't have any pain pills. I got it. We'll give you a nerve blocker at least to get you through the first few days. So, um, so yeah, bad things still happen, but now I'm equipped to be able to deal with them. Right. Right. So. And you didn't talk about how large of a role the gym played for you through this whole thing. Cause you were, I have avid gym goer. Like that was kind of like your, like your home base, almost like a sanctuary, like somewhere you could go and like release yeah. your stress and everything. So when you did hurt your arm, you tore your pack and your bicep, like how did that affect your life? And dude, man, it was, it, it was rough because honestly at the beginning I was so, I was so into the gym when I would, because for the first few months, I, if I had a bad day, right. I would always think about, hey man, just one, just one. I'm doing so good. Yeah. One of it will be no big deal. Like you're, you know, this internal dialogue will, will fuck you, you know. And it always used to win, but I, rem- I hate to say it, like it wasn't, it was, it was the gym. I was like, man, I know if I do a pill, I'm not used to it anymore. I'm gonna feel like shit tomorrow, and I'm not gonna go to the gym. And that's honestly kind of a, a couple with my kids and my family that kept me not going and reaching out again. But, you know, when I, when I did my pack, man, I remember I was in the emergency room crying. Like, not because it hurt so bad, although it hurt like a bitch. It fucking hurt like hell. But I was crying because I knew the gym was gone. Yeah. Like, I knew my outlet was gone. And... Yeah, like getting big and lean and fit is nice, but I do it for fucking up here, man. Mental. Like it's it's my mood changer. It's my confidence builder. It's, you know, my humbler. Like it humbles you sometimes too. You know, it it how my workouts go is, you know, how I can focus is how how well I eat. Yeah, you know, man. it's how I sleep. If I don't, I'm not working out, I eat like shit. I sleep like shit and I I can't focus. No concentration. So it all ties in with the gym. So when I did that, it was really tough. And I got through this one. I was literally in the gym four days after surgery, like in a sling, right, right. doing shit with like one arm. Again, because I knew if I just sat there, I would start to go back to the old mindset. So actually the first recovery wasn't that bad. Like I got back pretty quick. And then I was just getting back into shape, just getting back into my swing of things. So I'm not going to lie. It threw off kind of my mindset for a little bit, like content, because like I said, I'm not as creative when I'm not physically like pushing myself like to its limits and then a little bit beyond. Like I can completely relate to that. Yeah, yeah dude, I like I, I so write, I write some of my best content sitting in my parking, sitting in the parking lot in the gym. So like I'll have, I'll have a concept or an idea. I'll take a little note and then after my workout, I'll expand upon it. So that's where I got most of my ideas, you know, and and so I struggled with that for a long time, but I was starting to get back and then boom, I tear my fucking bicep tendon. And when I did it, I didn't believe it. Like I was in denial. I was like, nope, it didn't happen. Kept on working out for a month. Like I could do everything All except right. biceps. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. But like, I, you know, I knew it was torn, but I didn't want to believe it was torn. So you didn't want to go through that whole entire yeah, process again. Yeah, I was scared, man. So finally, I went back, and then yeah, that was it. it I went through probably a six-week period, man, where I maybe have slipped back a little bit to my old "why me?" I'm doing everything right. I'm helping people. Like, you know, why me? Like, why is this? And thank God, I'm self-aware enough now. To be able to, yo, like slap the fuck out of it. Stop being a little bitch and you're going to go through this anyway. You're already going through it. So you might as well like have a good positive attitude about it. 100%. So, you know, after a few weeks of feeling sorry for myself, I got back in the gym. You know, I, I was active again. So I was able to get through it and thank God I had that mindset and that self-awareness to catch myself kind of slipping down that slippery slope. Right. Let's talk a second about habit stacking because I know going to the gym every single day, telling yourself you're going to work out, say, five days five days a week, and actually going and doing what you're saying, it starts to build that self-confidence and self-trust in you. And I'm sure that played a big role, especially in your, your scenario in case, going to the gym like every single day or every other day and you know knowing that you're in control of your mind and your body. So could you like talk a little bit about some of the other benefits the gym had and 
just being consistent with like what you're telling yourself you're gonna do. Yeah, and that's that's huge. That's, I'm glad you asked that because that's something I, I touched on in my TEDx talk and my other talks that I give to, to schools and universities that you know it's not about going to the gym. It's not about like the task because when I first kind of got this idea of being a coach and a speaker, I still didn't have that much belief in myself because although I had a, I had a decent career now, I was being a good father, I was paying my bills, I had some money in the bank. Although I had all those things, I still was not following through with what I told myself I was going to do. So all of you guys out there right now, like ask yourself a question. Like what percentage of the time do you actually follow through with what you told yourself you're going to do? Like whether it's going to the gym, whether it's waking up at a certain time, whether it's you know reading 30 minutes of a book, like how often do you, do you actually do it? And then take that percentage and then ask yourself if you had a best friend and that friend only did what they told you they were going to do that same percentage of the time. Would you trust that person? That's good. I've never heard yeah. that. Would yeah, you, would, would you respect that person? No. The same, you have the same relationship with yourself. So if you don't follow through with what you say you're going to do, like let's say your confidence is right here. You tell yourself you're going to read when you get home tonight, but you decide to watch Netflix. Boop. Your self-trust, your confidence drops. 100%. Same thing. Boop. 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 Until eventually... You just know you're not going to do it. You may tell yourself you're going to, but deep down you know you're not going to do it. So if you can't trust yourself to wake up at the same fucking time every day, like why would you trust yourself to, you know, run a successful business, get that promotion, find the love of your life? Like there's no reason at all you would believe in yourself to do that. So what I did is I started small. I started, you know, that's the th- that's the thing I think a lot of people mess up with is they all right, I'm going to make all these life changes. I'm going to do all these things. And this 300-pound person says they're going to run a marathon in a month. Like, not realistic. And yeah, and you're not going to do it. So you start out with this huge goal, but you have like a little limiting belief, a limiting belief that you can actually accomplish it. So you, you, know, you take limited action. Then when you take the limited action, you get limited results. And then it only re-solidifies your original belief that you weren't good enough. So you have to start small and like you said, habit stack to build that confidence, trust, and self-worth within yourself to be able to then run that marathon or open that business or find the love of your life. So I started, you know, I would sleep until, you know, seven or eight. So I would first wake up at 6.30. And then after I did that for a little bit, wake up at six. And then eventually, you know, I got to 4.30, you know, and started waking up at 4.30 every day. And I used to always tell myself, I'm not a morning person. Like, you are what you tell yourself. The one thing that will always align, your life will always align with how you believe yourself to be subconsciously and the goodness you believe you deserve. That's why if it seems like if you keep on like taking a few steps forward and then like getting back, it's because you know, you don't believe you deserve the goodness you're accepting in your life. So you're going to self-sabotage yourself. That's so true. Yeah. So that will always be true. You may live a better life for six months or a year. But eventually, you're going to get back down to what you believe you deserve. Your identity. Your identity. It'll always align with the identity you have in yourself. So through those small action steps, through just keeping my house and car clean, through going to the gym every day, through being the hardest worker at my job, through waking up, I started to believe confidence and trust within myself. So when I told myself I was going to do something, like I knew it was going to be done. So I started to gain momentum and I literally started to shift my identity and my belief of who I was and what I was capable of. And I implore any of you guys out there right now to pick just three things, three things. They can, again, simple things that you know you can accomplish. They, they're not, they don't have to be hard things. You don't have to read five books in the next month. Read five fucking pages a day, five pages for the next 30 days and make a commitment to yourself. And after the 30 days, once you do something that you didn't think you could do, even though that seems small, you're like, wow, like, I wonder what else I could do. I wonder what else I'm telling myself I'm capable of that I'm lying to myself about. So once you start to break through some of those limiting beliefs, like, that's when the real fun starts. 100%. Because then you start to believe that anything is possible. For sure. And I got a first-hand glimpse of this. I'm doing the 75 hour challenge. I'm not going to go into depth on what that is. If you look up Andy Purcell's 75 hard, you guys can see what it is. But one of the things is literally just 
taking a progress picture every day. And people are like, yo, why would you do that? Like, that's not a big deal. But just doing it every single day and remembering to do it, it's the small things. Like, I'm following a diet. There's like a bowl of M&Ms, like taking three M&Ms, but I'm starving. I want, I need like a craving. But just ignoring that and staying away from it, that's what builds um, that self-trust that I can literally do anything I tell myself I can do. Yeah. Like, I know that. It's like... It's, it's foregoing instant gratification for long-term satisfaction. For sure. You know? All right, so there's a lot of people out there around my age, whether they're in college or not in college, that are struggling with some form of addiction, whether it's nicotine, like ripping the jewel or something like that. Could be coke, partying all the time, alcohol, especially at, in, like, big college towns. What would you, like, what advice would you give someone like that to kind of wean off their addiction, quit their addiction, or... Or find help, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I I think that's a that's a two like a two step answer. So first of all, I think they have to really take a hard look at themselves, what's going on in their current life, and ask themselves what what it is to where they can't stand being sober. Like for for most people, you know, it starts out maybe just having a few drinks or partying, but the reason it continues and consists, and the reason why some people grow out of it and some people don't. Is because they can't stand like the reality of their life, you know. Um, the jewel may be a little bit different, right. you know. That's 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 just straight willpower. You know, you just have to have willpower and ask yourself, you know, what type of example you want to set for your kids or to other people. And if you want to be like a slave, that goes back to the thing we were talking about before about just following through with what you said you're going to do. If you can't even like stop something you're not going to have trust in yourself to you know go accomplish anything like big or great so first of all you know if it is hard substances or alcohol take a hard look at yourself and ask yourself like hey why is it that i feel the need every time i go out i have to get blacked out because you can't be social without right you know drinking at all or maybe just a drink or two like you, you can't be social like that ask yourself why and then once you get to that reason either work through it yourself, talk to your friends, talk to your parents about it. Or if it really is, maybe, you know, you were abused as a kid, or maybe you have PTSD, maybe you're a veteran. I don't know what it is you're struggling with, but if it's something major that can't be talked through with friends or family, go get some professional help. Oh yeah, that's a great answer. Because it definitely, a lot of it stems from being insecure in yourself, and you're using it as a way to cope with something else that's going on deeper downside exactly um something that i just kind of thought of i've been listening to david goggins book uh yes. can't hurt me I, I on audiobook. a few months ago you listen to it oh yeah awesome. it gets like really dark I and made, pretty deep yeah and the first like few chapters it all he like talks about his father and how his father's relationship with him just kind of like ruined him mentally and like it caused him a lot of struggle like going on through the rest of his life but also hardened him and toughened him i was wondering if you could like speak on how your relationship with your father and the, the people you're surrounded with influenced you later on, like right now even. Your yeah. Cousin. Well, yeah. So like my father, he, he now, you know, I always looked at my father and I was like, I want to be just like him, just like him. But, you know, today, you know, he's living in like a one bedroom apartment, like out in Daytona Beach, like still trying to kind of make ends meet, you know? So now I see what type of lifestyle that leads to. And Every pretty much person who lives that type of crazy lifestyle, like the real Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, eventually lost it all. You know, like guys like Gordon Gecko, like yeah. just all those type of people who live this crazy, extravagant drug lifestyle, they may be able to pull it off for 10, 15, in my dad's case, 20 years, but eventually he's going to catch up to you. So now I look at him as a different way, to, like he's a big catalyst in why I raise my kids the way I raise my kids today. Like I try to teach them about morals, you know, treat women right. Like even my two year old, this is pretty funny. You know, his teacher told me he has two girlfriends, right? In <laughs> yeah, I know. So when Cassidy, one of his girlfriends is being like mean to him, his teacher told me he'll go over to Nina and then Cassidy will get all mad. So he's like already manipulating oh, people already, you know, to like get Cassidy. So I try to tell him like, Angelo, one girlfriend, buddy. One. He's like, he's like, no, two. You know, but I'm still trying to, you know. And we laugh and we joke about it. He's two years old, 
But I'm still, you know... Uh, so, he's the youngest one? The two-year-old, bro. Oh, man. Yeah, the little one, dude. Um, the, the five-year-old, I bring up girls. He's like, cooties, you know? Right. You know? But but the two-year-old, man, he, he's proud of it, dude. He wears it like a badge of honor. Um, but again, I still don't want to be like, yeah, two girlfriends, high five. Because even though... That's what most fathers would do, and they wouldn't think it has a big impact on them. You know, when he gets in high school, he's going to want to impress me and get more high fives from dad for having two, girl, for having two girlfriends. So um, I want to make sure I instill. So now I look at my father as a way, you know, I don't want to be. So that's how, you know, he really influenced me. And then again, you know, from my mother, I really haven't talked about her at all. But, you know, she didn't know a lot of this stuff that was going on as we were growing up. My mother is an amazing woman. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Like, my mom is driving an hour to and an hour back for like, you know, a $15 an hour job right now. And she's almost 60 years old. Like, and this may be a good segue into the visualization because every single morning I visualize driving like a Benz or a Range Rover up to her house while she's blindfolded and then handing her like, a $10,000 check and be like, ma, quit your fucking job. This is your car. And every month, like I'm going to be sending you a check like this. So oh, like, yeah. that's one of my main drivers to, you know, not, you know, I want to help people. I want to drive value, but you know, that's, I want to help her and my kids the most. For sure. So let's, yeah. let's go back a little bit with the visualization. Cause I know that did play a big part in your life. Mm-hmm. So how would you go about visualization because a lot of people are like what do you do just lay in bed and just like visualize kind of like yeah. a little bit it's almost like a meditation slash a visualization and yeah just tell them like how you do it personally and what type of stuff you'd visualize and how it helped you yeah so you know everyone thinks of life as this like have do be once i have this job or once i have this house then i'm gonna you know be happy do do great things and then i'm gonna you know, do this with my wife and then I will finally be happy. But that's not how it works, right? It's actually be, do, have. So you have to, your brain doesn't notice the difference. Your brain doesn't know the difference between a feeling you get from an actual real life event or a feeling you get from a visualization, right? So if I like, if you don't know where to start, just YouTube Tony Robbins mental priming. That's where I started. I kind of had my own practice and tweaked it um, throughout the years, but that's where I started for six months just listening to his mental priming every single day. I'll send you the link so you can post it in the notes. For sure, yeah. Um, and that's where I started, and it's just so, such a powerful tool because most people wake up every morning thinking about their problems and thinking about you know, things that are out of their control and they're focusing on what they don't have instead of what they want. So every single morning, this practice, it goes through for a few, it takes 10, 15 minutes, three things that you're grateful for. Like you imagine the actual emotion. So like I imagine, you know, like running on my kids with the beach, coaching their t-ball teams because I coach their teams, Um, you know, them being born, just like being on that TEDx stage. Like I just envision things that I'm truly grateful for, fill my heart up with gratitude, and then you transfer into envisioning things that you want to happen in the future. And don't be critical of yourself because it's hard to do, right? At first, I'm like, wait, you just have to visualize what you want and then take action and then it happens? Like, bullshit, you know? But, you know, if you can, like, conjure up those feelings of, you know, love, happiness, success, abundance, prosperity. First thing every day, we all, we all act in accordance with how we feel, right? So if we're feeling all of those things every single morning, we'll then act in accordance with those feelings and then eventually over time, it doesn't happen overnight, over a month, but then over time, we will eventually manifest our visualizations. I can't tell you how many times I've visualized something happening and it almost happens exactly how I envision it. It, it gets like my hair standing up sometimes because it happens like that. And you know, sometimes I'll do visualizations and I don't feel much. Right. Other times I'll bring myself to tears. <clears throat> like imagine driving up to that car in front of my mom's house. So I think that's a really, it's a really pivotal deal to shift again that identity 
of who you are and what you're capable of. Yeah, for sure. For example, like I personally visualize interviews with people I really want to interview and I I think of myself in my body, so I guess first person. I don't know if you do third or first, but first, yeah. I literally think of myself like speaking with so just for example, like Ed Milet, like having a conversation with him, and I picture it exactly how I'd want it to go yeah. in my mind. And I try and manifest these things in reality and I could not tell you how many things. I write all my goals down and what I want my life to look like and I've been doing this for three or four years now and I can literally go back and cross up like 75% of them. Yeah. It's insane, dude. It, it, it really is. It gives me chills because it's, if you put your mind to it even, and take yeah. action. Even and, with the little things, you know, most people before they go into a meeting, before they have, you know, if you're still an athlete, before you have a game, Yep. You know, before, you know, you even maybe just have a difficult conversation with someone. Take two minutes, one fucking minute even, and close your eyes and envision how you want it to go. Because most people just, you know, go through the motions. I even tell my sons, like on the way to baseball, I have them, cl- they're five and two. I make them close their eyes. I'm like, you see it? He's like, I don't see it. You know, but like, no, you gotta I'm, start I'm getting, yeah. You gotta ingrain it, it in them. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't see it, dad. <laughs> but, but all I see is black. <laughs> but but he, he's starting to get it. You know, he even knows. I, so like, I, we had, he had his friend over here the other day and I was trying to wake him up the other day. He wasn't waking up. He's like, yeah, my mind heard my dad, but I didn't hear him. Because I tell him, because I play affirmations for him while he's sleeping. Like, I am affirmations. Cool. And so, you know, he knows that his mind is listening to everything already. He's already conceptualizing that type of stuff. So, and visualization is also a huge part to activate your reticular activating system. I was going to lead into yeah. that, actually, so I'm happy. So, um, reticular activating system, or your RAS, it's a part of your brain that... So, if we noticed everything that went on around us, right... Like we get sensory overload. Every car that passed, every sound we heard, if we brought our conscious attention to all that, it would drive us nuts. You'd be in a straight jacket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our RAS basically points out things to our conscious attention that we're focused on or are important in our lives. So if you're focused, that's like Charlie. You follow Charlie? Charlie Rocket. Yeah, the, the winning streak. He talks about it all the time. If you're focused on the wins, you're going to see more wins. If you're focused on the negative and the lack and the bad and everything you don't have, there's a lot of bad in the world. You know, you'll see all of it. You'll notice all of it. But it's like, have you ever bought a new car? And then over that next week, you see that same car everywhere. You're like, damn, everybody bought this car last weekend. Like, no, it's your RAS just pointing that car out to you because now it knows it's an important part of your life. The same thing happens with your goals. If you don't let your brain know where you're headed, it can't help you get there. So it'll start to point out people, places, things, and opportunities that align you with and get you closer to your goals. And this isn't fucking, this is science. Like this works. This is exactly how the brain works. Go Google reticular activating system. And it's, it's a powerful tool that everybody should utilize for the good. But most people utilize it. Unfortunately, because they're not aware of it. They're not aware. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like people literally start coming into your life. If you put that out there into the universe, I swear. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about self accountability and being able to trust yourself, but while you're going through like some of the hardest times in your life, did you have anyone like any friends or mentors or anyone that did hold you accountable? Yeah, dude. So you? if if it wasn't for you know I, ha- I have a I have a handful of friends that we all go back to high school. We're still like on like a group text and everything. Um, you know when I didn't have a place to sleep, sometimes they would let me sleep on their couch. When I needed thirty bucks, they would help me out. Even though sometimes it was for drugs, <laughs> <laughs> but. But you know they were still they were still there for me and they would still you know when I truly truly needed them you know they helped me get back up on my feet. They did disown me for a little bit and rightfully so man I wouldn't have dealt with the shit that I was doing. Right. But if it wasn't for that core group of friends and my roommate that I had um, in downtown Orlando dude I, I don't know where I would be right now because they really helped pull me up to just a better version of myself. Like there is a point in time like a friend isn't someone who always supports you. You know, no. a friend is someone who's like, yo, you're fucking up. I'm done with you until you, like, step your game up a little bit. And that's what they did. So, you know, if it wasn't for them. I'd always rather have a friend that's going to be brutally honest with you and get you right. Like, dude, if you're getting fat or something, or like, like, yeah, they're like, are you okay? Whatever. And they're like, dude, like, you need to start in the gym, dude. You yeah. need to, like, do something. Or, I was like, just like you said, like, if they see you have a drug problem or something, like, mm-hmm. have an honest talk with them. Don't just let it slip by. That's not a true friend. And they want the best for you. Exactly, exactly. Someone who, you know, they're just enabling you if they're supporting you all the time no matter what. 
And just one more thing on the accountability real quick. Everyone says, you know, like pain is the catalyst for change. I don't believe that to be 100% true. I believe experiencing pain through taking accountability for it is like the true catalyst for change. Because I experienced pain for a decade, but I didn't change. Why? Because it was always someone else's fault, someone else's fault. But when you do that, you're literally telling your subconscious mind you're not in control. So it gives you this feeling of helplessness, of hopelessness, and you're literally telling your mind it doesn't matter what decisions you make because you're not the one dictating the outcomes. But when you finally take accountability and experience the pain and realize, damn, if I didn't do that, like I probably wouldn't be in this situation right now. It sucks. It's easier to blame that person or thing in the short term, but it's just going to perpetuate the cycle. Take the accountability, experience that pain in the short term so you don't have to experience it over and over and over again and, and break the cycle. Right. I don't want to bring up Goggins' book again, but that was like one of the first lessons he teaches is you have to own your shit before you can change get through it. And it's going to yeah. be the hardest thing you've done. It like, sucks. Everyone it, has something that they It sucks. Like I, <clears throat> I, that pain that I experienced for that week, man, and even for the next six months, realizing, trying to get back up on my feet, Damn, like, I'm, I'm 29 years old, and look, I'm just just building my life. Like, what the fuck, you know? So yeah. it was a hard realization to understand, seeing everybody else buy houses, you know, go to Hawaii and stuff, and I'm figuring out how the fuck I'm gonna fill up my fridge at 29. Yeah. You know, everyone's on in a different place. Exactly, different time, and then right? and once I realized that, right, and now look what you're doing now. Yeah, if that shit didn't happen, you wouldn't be traveling around public speaking and helping others with your story. There wouldn't be a story. No, there were exa- <laughs> so, exactly. exactly. If everything happened the way I wanted, I would be a partying drug addict, like sleeping with strippers and models all the time. Although it sounds glamorous and at 20 I'd be like, yeah, like, no, that's, that's not fulfilling. That's not the type of life I want to live. So sometimes what you want to happen, not happening is the best thing to ever happen. Uh, all right. So you basically told me your whole story. And from when you went into the facility all the way through to the end. But I'm really curious on how you transitioned from, it wasn't the rehab, it was like the mental institute kind of, where you like had that switch click in your mind. How you transitioned from that to speaking to people on stages and even doing life coaching. I just call it life coaching. But yeah, helping people with mindset. Yeah. So, you know, at first I didn't know where to start. I just knew like... And it was, it's a funny story because you texted me the other day. You're like, dude, I just watched your TEDx talk. Like, you're a great public speaker. Yeah. And my brother told me, I think like two or three days before, um, he was like, yeah, man. Like, I remember because I remember when I wrote my first speech, I went over to my mom's house. I was so excited. I did it for the whole family. He's like, dude, I remember when you did that. He's like, in the back <laughs> of my mind, I was like, this ain't for him. Oh, like, he man. should fucking quit. Like, he told me that like three days ago. We were laughing about it and everything because, yeah, I sucked at first. Like the story I just told you in 20 minutes would have taken me an hour and a half. And, you know, just again, I think it was like an ego thing trying to, but my speaking skills were not on point. I didn't know how to structure my message. So it took time. It took being bad at something to actually do it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then we talked about this earlier before we got on camera. Yeah. Like when you said you were starting this podcast, you didn't know, or this, this YouTube channel, you didn't know what you were doing. No idea. But no one knows when there's before they do it i had a vision yeah i knew what i wanted to do but i didn't know how to set up all this stuff i didn't have a backdrop or anything i had one camera and an iphone you know how to ask good questions and pull out the good things out of people but even just getting comfortable in front of cameras and lighting it's weird dude just like stuff like that same with public speaking yeah yeah so you know i implore anyone out there who has a dream has something want to accomplish like just go out there you're gonna be bad at first you're gonna suck it up but hey, everyone who did something great was bad when they started. No one, you know, Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. You know, like, you know, Jeff Bezos started in his garage. Yeah. You know, everyone has to start Oprah was fired from um, her TV station in her 20s. You know, so you got to just go out there, start, and then you'll learn. So basically... I just started calling rehab facilities and schools. And at first, the schools didn't really want it. I didn't have a website. I didn't, you know, have anything right. yet. Um, 
So I just literally started going to rehab facilities and speaking for free at rehab facilities, at detox centers. I went to a prison up in Jacksonville. I spoke in a prison. Um, and that's how I started. And then slowly but surely, you know, after a half a dozen talks and then a dozen talks, I would get better. I would realize, I would look at the expressions on people's faces when I told certain parts of the story. I realized where I was maybe stretching a part out a little longer than I should and I can cut that part out. So I would go back, look at the tape and just improve a little bit each and every time. For sure. How many talks do you think you did before you did your, your big TEDx? My TEDx talk, probably less than a dozen. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're that, really that was like that was like, that was like eight months ago, um, and probably probably only a half a dozen talks and no paid talks before then. Like I, I had wow. I had no paid talks before I did my TEDx talk, and then after my TEDx talk, it's kind of where things started to to kind of go up um, on the trajectory. So, but I, you know, e- even today, man. Um, you know, I still know there's a lot of room for improvement. I still know there's a lot of things to get better on. And, you know, the second you think you know everything is the second. That's true. You're fucked. Yeah. You're never going to like, there's (laughs) always room for improvement and growth in every aspect. Exactly. In my opinion. Definitely. So, I mean, I think we covered a large portion of like a lot. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add before I finish up with the last question? Yeah. No, just that, you know, whoever, if someone is out there struggling right now and, you think that like it's not possible like i'm proof it's possible like i'm not special i'm not any fucking different than nick than you to anybody listening out there right now there's nothing special about me i just made a decision of who i wanted to be and i took action steps to get there it's it takes time it's not going to happen overnight I'm still a work in progress. I still revert back to my old mindset sometimes. But it is possible. Change is possible. So if anyone out there you know, thinks they need some guidance or thinks they need some support to – and it's not just people who you know, may be down and out. So, you know, some of my coaching clients are people you know, who make six figures but they know they can just be a little bit better you know? or they're just unhappy and unfulfilled. You know, and I and I help you know guide them and give them course and direction. So if anyone out there thinks they could use some guidance and support, and this message that I spoke about resonated with you, um, he'll leave my my Instagram. My well, my website is Jimmy Defalco D E F A L C O dot com, and my Instagram handle is uh, Jimmy underscore Defalco as well. So go on my website, fill out the form, hit me up in the DMs, and I would love to you know set up a free thirty minute call and just talk about your situation. And, you know, to see if um, I'm the right person to help because sometimes I'm not the person to help everyone. Right. And I'll be right there. And I'll be the first one to tell you, um, hey, man, like you need a, a, a professional, like a, like a, a doctor, yeah. you know, to, to help. But, um, but yeah, so just go ahead and do that. Back to the learning and growing, like we're both in two masterminds. Like no one's ever too good to keep learning stuff. Yeah, I just ex- wanted to bring that Yeah, exactly. I, I have, I just signed up with the co- for a new coaching program yesterday. You know, shout out to Brody Kern, like, you know, wake up wealthy. It's, 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 um, you know, if I, I can't expect people to invest in me if I'm not willing to invest in myself. Like, it's pretty silly to, yeah. All right. So the last question I was going to ask you kind of like probably answered more than half of it in your, in what you just said before that, but I'm going to ask you anyway. (laughs) So if there's someone out there listening who has big goals or big aspirations in life, but they're afraid to take massive actions towards what they want because maybe it's their parents aren't supporting them. They're afraid of um, failing or criticism from their peers. Like I almost, dude, it took me forever to launch Real Driven because I was just afraid of like what my friends and my fraternity and stuff would think of me, bro. Mm-hmm. So like someone like that who wants to do something crazy with their life, but they don't have, they have limited beliefs or they're afraid of what other people think. Like what's something you would tell them to? inspire them or to get them to take action yeah so fast forward to the end of your life right you're lying on your deathbed at 90 or 100 years old hopefully you make it that long like what what if you never take action like what what are you going to think of yourself what are you going to regret going back at the end of your life like literally envision that and envision the pain of never even at least trying like hey man if you try and you fail 
like, hey, you, you learned, you grow, you can f- change your action steps. Anything is possible with you know, the right action steps at the right time in the right order. You just have to shift those things around a little bit. So I would just, and back to the thing about what people think, I struggled with that too, man. Yeah, like, it's, it's like especially one. with that story, especially with like the abortion thing. Like, what people, I'm not going to say that part. Nah, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to leave that out. <laughs> but you know what? Like, I feel that sharing that part, like, makes me more real, makes me more relatable. And I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. I'm trying to say like, hey, I'm just like you. And, you know, change is possible. And it took me a long time to get over what other people think. I, every single post I used to have, and I would post stuff on Instagram for a long time because most of my followers on Instagram didn't know me personally. Right. It took me maybe three months after I started putting out content to start posting it on Facebook because yeah. I didn't want, you know? And hey man, like uh, I even remember my brother said he was at a party like a year ago and he's like, the Falco thinks she's so fucking smart and talking shit, da 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 Like he told me his name. I'm like, I don't even know who that is. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Other people's opinions are not going to pay your bills. They're not going to make you happy. They're not going to make you fulfilled. So just go out there. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you money. Do what makes you fulfilled. And fuck everyone else. Dude, yeah. Literally everyone's going to have an opinion too. So, like, do what you do and go all in on that because you're going to have haters. Either way. people who love you. But if you're in the middle and you're just like, I don't really know, like, what I want to do, I don't really have an opinion either way. Like, you're not going anywhere, dude. That's just being average. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. But, dude, thank you so much for being here. Nah, dude, thank you for having me, man. awesome. Thank you for having me, bro. Um, I'm going to drop all of Jimmy's info in the description and also my Instagram post so you guys can see that. His website, Instagram, all of that good stuff. But, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode. Don't know when it's coming, who it's going to be. It's going to be a surprise. I don't know. Probably going to be awesome, though. <laughs> Peace. I guess. That's it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it and were able to take away some tremendous value from it. Now, I want to remind you that knowledge is only power if you make the effort to actually take action and implement it into your daily life. I can assure you, if you just listen to the podcast, take zero notes, and don't make an effort to take the practical tools we provide you and put it into daily practice, 90% of the info will be out the window within a week. Guaranteed. It's just how it works. So do me a favor and review your notes and see how you can implement what you just learned from the podcast. It will help you tremendously. So as a bonus, every week I'll be picking one person on Instagram who screenshots the podcast and tags at real underscore driven to give away one piece of RD merch of your choosing. Hats, shirts, whatever you guys like. So with that being said, I hope you all have a kick-ass day and I'll see you next time.